this morning, we have Dave Blaschke here uh, to speak. Dave and I met in 2003. I was a Dulos leader, and he was my Dulos coach. And uh, he was really the first person to show me what it looks like to walk with Christ on a daily basis. So uh, I am forever grateful for that. After that, he interned here uh, in College Life uh, for a year or two, and then he went on and got his Master's in Human Resources from A&M. Then he went on and got his Master's in Theology at DTS, and then he went on kind of at the same time and got his Master's of Philosophy at Talbot. Uh, so he's smart, or he just really likes school. One of the two of those, but he's also married to Jenny, and they just had their first baby, Sophia, four weeks ago. So he is a new dad, and he's working at Brass's Christian. So we are excited to have Dave speaking this morning. But before he comes up, we just want you all to have a chance to get up, uh, introduce yourself to the people around you. Howdy. Uh, it's, it's quite a, a privilege uh, to speak with uh, you guys this morning. It's fun to see some familiar faces. Uh, the last time I, I spoke here to the college class was a little over seven years ago, actually. And I've been told, and maybe some, if there's some biology majors here, can maybe can check me on this. I've, I've been told that uh, the, the human body replaces its cells every seven years. Is, is, is that, I've, I've heard that. And so if all we are are complex collections of physical parts, then I'm a completely new person which is an interesting implication of, of any worldview that, that has that in there. I want to thank Marty. That was, that was thanks for the introduction. It's, it's, it's been a privilege to, to be friends with him for quite a long time. Uh, it's been encouragement to, to me, both as we met each other in Dulos and after that in, in sharing our time in, in seminary together as well. It's really, it's really fun to be a dad. Uh, right now, it's, it's really easy for the most part. I mean, Sleep can be challenging sometimes, but pretty much all she does is eat, uh, sleep, and poop, and which means for her, that means, well, good baby. Now, if those sorts of things characterize your life as a college student, uh, you may need to think about that a little bit more. Uh, well, well, today, what I was asked to talk about is the existence of God. Uh, this summer, you guys have been going through different attributes or characteristics of God and, and the implications of those sorts of things. Well, the, really the major assumption behind those things was, well, that God actually exists and that he's actually there or here or however you want to characterize that. So today, what we're going to do is a little more philosophical in nature, uh, which I think can be a very good thing and a very beneficial thing. Uh, and it's going to be a little hodgepodge of a different sorts of things. It's a big, big issue. And uh, so I ask that you would be just kind of patient, just sit back. Any scriptures that I, that I go to or point to, I'll have up here. So you don't need to be as concerned about getting there, getting ready. If you want to, that's perfectly fine. But I would just want you to know that ahead of time. If you just want to sit back, take it in, and, and that sort of thing. Okay. But here is the three things I'd like to do today. First of all, well, I, well, I'm just going to call them first things. Uh, there's a few things I just want to mention beforehand before we get into talking about some of these things that I think will be quite helpful. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go into some arguments for God's existence. It's not my intention this morning to go into detail to defend them specifically or go through the premises and arguments for or against. We just simply don't have time for that this morning. Uh, but my intention is to at least show them to you, so if you have never seen them before, that you at least have some sort of idea that they're there, <laughs> okay? If you've seen them before, uh, perhaps they can just be a refresher, a reminder to you. Perhaps you're really well familiar with them. Well, that's great. It'd be just, it'd be, it's just fun to go over them again, okay? But then what I really want to spend the bulk of our time this morning is, is this third point, and that's thinking about some implications if God does not exist. I think that's an idea that we can kind of wrap our minds around this morning. And, and hopefully, as we leave this place, that we have some sort of sense of what it means for your life and just life in general if God just doesn't exist. Okay. 
Okay, so some of these first things. The first two are kind of together here. The first one is to, I want to encourage you guys to seek truth. The truth indeed is a virtue, and, and it should be the case in your life that you want to understand reality. The way life really is, what actually exists, what is there. And then two, to follow the implications, whatever those may be. You may not like those implications, but I hope that we are honest enough to see that, well, if we're going to take these questions seriously, that we're willing to go where the evidence leads us, the way reality really is, and to follow those implications. Even if Christianity is true, which I certainly believe it does, and in this crowd, that's probably not going to be too much of an issue, but there may be even some implications in the scriptures themselves of what we are asked to do as Christians that we might not be all that comfortable with. Take up your cross and follow me? Our, our Savior was crucified. The world hated him. Why should we expect any different? There's some implications there that may not be all that savory to us. But I want to encourage you, those are the sorts of things that we need to seriously consider when we think about this, okay? The third point, and I think this is very, very important, we could actually spend a long time talking about this one, is even though we talk about arguments for the existence of God, we, we are trying to do our best to use our minds and engage in reason as God has equipped us with these uh, cognitive faculties and intellectual capacities to think as best as we can and to make sense of reality, that is a blessing. That is a blessing. But I don't want to give you the impression that I am pushing faith aside. That somehow I'm saying reason is all we really need to emphasize or focus on. That's not the case at all. In fact, reason and faith, they're actually together. They're working together. They are not opposed to one another. When we think about our faith in Christ, we, I think one of the appropriate terms to use, perhaps because faith is kind of thrown around in a lot of different terminology, perhaps it's helpful. It's helpful for me to, to just use the word trust, that we're trusting Christ. And when we think about whether something is or is not trustworthy, well, well, we want to have reason to believe whether or not this thing is trustworthy. For example, you are all sitting in these chairs this morning. You, you probably, I, I didn't do it, and you probably didn't think about it. When you walked in, you probably just, you didn't look at the chair, examine it, you know, say, okay, is this really reasonable for me to sit down? Is it going to hold me up? Perhaps there are other things that we really just assume about these chairs. You've sat in them before. You have good reason. They've held you up before. Uh, you don't notice anything that stands out about them, and so you just simply sit down. But nonetheless, when we think about trusting something, we want to have good reason to believe that, well, this, whatever we're trusting is actually trustworthy. And so when we engage in these sorts of things, and I really hope you walk away this morning incredibly encouraged in your own personal faith and trust in Christ, that there is actually good reason to believe uh, that God exists. And we're actually not going to spend a ton of time making that connection from theism to Christianity per se this morning. Those are definitely issues for another time, and I encourage you, if you, if you want to talk to me about those, where, where can we go, and those sorts of things, I'll be happy to do that afterwards. Uh, and, and these last two things are, are very important. Uh, this is a community endeavor. This is something we do collectively. Uh, this isn't the sort of thing, apologetics, philosophy, uh, using our reason. It's, it's community-oriented. It's community-based. It's encouraging one another. It's, it's trying to make sense of arguments. It's trying to make sense of the reality that we're experiencing. And it's encouraging it to, to do this in a community with one another. And, and the last thing is be nice to yourself. Please be nice to yourself. Uh, especially if these sorts of things are new to you, you may think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to attend to these things. This is, this is crazy. It may be the case that when you first introduce to these things, it might be a little challenging. But in some other ways, it's sort of like another language. And sometimes it just takes time. For me personally, some of these things took time to sink in. So you're not alone if you feel a little bit overwhelmed. Be nice to yourself. Go easy on yourself. Don't put any too, pre too much pressure on yourself. Okay? All right. Well, those are my first things. So now what I want to do is I want to go through a few arguments for the existence of God. And, 
and I just kind of want to introduce you to them. And there's one of them more specifically that I'm going to talk a little bit more about later on. A couple things that I want you to consider. Uh, individual arguments for the existence of God can be helpful in and of themselves. But let's just be honest here. Some arguments may be more convincing to you than others. Uh, others less convincing. Uh, there may be some intuitive feels towards other arguments, more logical pressing on other arguments. It just varies. And, and you know, I, I have friends that find different arguments more persuasive than other arguments, and that's just the way it is. But really, I think the, the strong case to be made for the existence of God is more about the collective. It's more about the collective set of all these sorts of arguments that are trying to make sense of reality. And as a collective whole, a sort of evidentiary pie, if you will, that this in and of itself is significantly persuasive. Well, the first one I want to start with is typically not what it's not started with in typical philosophical discussions, simply because, well, we're not all Christians in philosophical discussions. <laughs> but here this morning, I want to start with this one because I hope that you walk away with, from this one very encouraged. Because you may walk away from here thinking, getting lost in, oh, how do I know God exists? What about all this evidence? Well, I want you to walk away with something this morning that you, that's perhaps a bit more tangible to you personally if you are a Christian. I read these from Paul from Ephesians. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, if you place your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the part of that process of what God does is he puts, sends the Spirit to indwell you and you operate as a seal. The Spirit's not leaving you. Now, there's something to this that I think can be very helpful. Your personal relationship with and experience of God is certainly good reason for you to believe that God exists. Hello, that you experience him. Just like I'm experiencing this podium right now, I have my hands on this podium, I can feel it. My experience of God is certainly different than my experience of this podium, but it's nonetheless an experience of him. And that is certainly justifiable reason for you to believe that God exists. Now, this is very beneficial for you. It should be encouraging to you. Even in the light, perhaps, of you face some of your professors that like, may just harp on Christianity and you may be discouraged, but then you're just thinking, I've experienced this and this and this, and that's good. That's there for you. And it could be encouraging also for others who know you that see perhaps some spiritual fruit, they can see that and discern that. Uh, but there's kind of a caveat to this one when it comes to engaging with other people. This is actually, as, as should be rather obvious when we step back and think about it, is there's limited access to it for other people. That is, it's your experience. It's your relationship with God. Now, perhaps other people, other believers can have these sorts of experiences and you can share them with one another, but if you're discussing this issue with somebody who's not a Christian and they do not have this experience with them, this sort of presentation to them is like they don't have this experience. They can't attend to this sort of thing. Now, perhaps they can, they can trust your testimony because, well, testimony is certainly a justifiable source of, of knowledge. Um, of course, we want to get that from trustworthy people. You know, there's a part of that as well. But nonetheless, I, I want to add that in there. And, and so there's a little caveat to it. But I want to start with that, that hopefully you can walk away very encouraged. That that's good reason for you to believe that God exists. Now, here's another one that is actually made, is very, is pretty popular recently. Uh, it's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And there's a few different ways I've seen this cashed out. I've just put this one up here for you this morning. Uh, two premises and a conclusion that follows. The first premise is everything that begins to exist has a cause. Second premise is, well, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And so what we're trying to do here with this argument is trying to make sense of, well, okay, uh, Edwin Hubble, 1929, uh, saw a redshift of the galaxies, so he says, okay, galaxies are moving away from each other. Let's just wind the tape back. Oh, well, we have a beginning to the universe. 
this thing had a, had a beginning, what sometimes referred to as the singularity now, and now we've got to make sense of this. Matter is not eternal. At least it seems, at least in our universe, we can start with that, perhaps. And so we need to have some sort of explanation for this. And so this is the sort of thing that the Kalam cosmological argument goes after. And I think it's a relatively strong argument. And it concludes, therefore, the universe has a cause. And there's certain sorts of things we can take from the implications of a finite universe that perhaps can indicate to us that this cause is God. For example, uh, if there's a cause that's beyond the universe and the universe that, that space and time were created, the cosmic singularity, the Big Bang, perhaps this thing that caused the universe is timeless, not subject to space, spaceless, timeless, spaceless. Uh, The universe was not necessary, it seems. It could have been otherwise. And so perhaps that the cause of the universe is a personal agent, because it wasn't necessary. It seems like there's some sort of causation that's going on here that seems perhaps in our experience to reflect our, our understanding of what personal agency looks like. So those are the sorts of things we do with the Kalam argument. The next one I want to talk about is the moral argument or the axiological argument. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one a little bit later. Uh, but the way this is cashed out a little differently sometimes, and, and I just want you to take a look at it the way we've done it this morning. Hopefully it's a little bit more straightforward. Premise one, if objective morality exists, then God exists. And what we mean by objective here is that it exists as it is, independent of our beliefs about it. That is, we can believe it exists or we can believe it doesn't exist, but that doesn't change whether it exists or not. Uh, For example, I make the claim that there is a church auditorium across the street. I believe that there is a church auditorium across the street. Well, perhaps we could have other people in here that say, I don't believe there's a church auditorium across the street, but... Whether or not you believe there is one, it doesn't change whether or not, the, well, there actually is one over there. It's independent of your beliefs about it. Uh, perhaps another example that I like to, to use is, I make the claim, it is raining outside. If I really believe that it's raining outside, then whether or not you disagree with me, it's not going to change whether or not it's actually raining out there. I'm looking through the windows right now, and I have good reason to believe that it's not raining, because I don't see anything right there, but, you know, and the, the sun's out, and the sort, those sorts of things. But if I make the claim that it is raining, and I believe that, and you say, and you believe it is not raining outside, well, we disagree with one another, but guess what? It either is or it isn't raining out there, independent of our beliefs about it. And so when we talk about objective morality, what we mean is that moral values and duties exist independently of our beliefs about them. So good and evil uh, is not a matter of subjective preference, but they actually, there are actually moral facts and duties and those sorts of things that exist in reality. And we'll come back to this one. But the claim is if objective morality exists, then God exists. And part of that is, well, how do we account for the existence of objective moral facts? It seems like God is perhaps the best explanation, uh, if not the only for that. Premise two is objective morality exists. That's the claim that it does exist, and so necessarily three, therefore God exists. That's what we do, okay? So if we can demonstrate that one and two are true, then it necessarily follows that three, God exists. That's what we're doing with the the moral argument here. And I think this may kind of be what Paul might be getting at a little bit when he talks in Romans 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, Because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made so people are without excuse. Specifically in reference to righteousness, unrighteousness, godliness, those sorts of things. So Paul's certainly making the claim here that it seems obvious, or perhaps the case in his view of reality seems that, well, I think we, by our own nature, seem to perceive that there are actually things that are good and evil, right and wrong, those sorts of things. And and part of that implication is what Paul may be going after here is that God indeed exists and he put this uh, on us. Uh, The next one is the design argument. There's lots of different ways this thing's talked about. 
Premise one here that I have is the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Those are the options. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. And of course, the crux of this is going to be talking about premise two, is making a case, namely, that it's not due to chance. And that's where the discussion and the argument is largely going to be held uh, on this argument. Okay? And I think that's perhaps what David's talking about here when he, when he claims in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky displays his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out, night after night it reveals his greatness. See, David's making a claim that you can perceive and you can see God based upon the physical universe, what we see, what we observe, and there's some sort of design implication here of what we see. Now there are uh, lots of other arguments, and I've just put a few of them down here, such as the ontological argument, uh, the argument from consciousness, that perhaps that we are self-aware, uh, argument from free will, that we can freely choose and select things. And there's also arguments from beauty, and interestingly enough, actually I've seen philosophers make arguments from colors and flavors, and our ability to have these sorts of things as human persons. And so on. There's, there's, there's lots of other ones, and I don't really want to spend a lot of time going there today, uh, but I want you to kind of get a sense and a feel for the sort of thing that's going on here. All right? Now we're at our last point here for today, and that is some implications if God does not exist. And the way I like to open this up is a quote from Dr. William Provine, uh, who's at Cornell University. He actually, I, I, last time I checked, I actually went on uh, the Cornell site uh, yesterday, and he was, he was still there. It, it said teaching, but he has a brain tumor, um, and, and so he's, he's not a believer. Uh, so if, if you guys, just every, whenever you think of him, perhaps he crosses your mind, I encourage you to pray for him um, through his, his suffering. But he actually grew up, I think, in a, in a theistic household, I think even a Christian household. I'm not 100% sure about that. But he shared specifically here what exactly happened with him uh, when he left theism and went to atheism. He says this, Well, it starts by giving up an active deity. Okay? So God's out of the picture. He says, Then it gives up the hope that there is any life after death. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there is an imminent morality. And finally, there is no human free will. If you believe in evolution, you cannot hope for any free will. There is no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in human life. We live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. And so it seems to me there's some implications of life if God does not exist. And uh, perhaps these may not, perhaps you look at these and say, no, maybe we can make sense of those. Maybe we can't make sense of those. That, that's fine. I'm not here this morning to, to say you have to agree with me. That's, that's not the case here. You know, if, if you, it's up to you here on some of these things, okay? But I would just want you to think about them and consider them and, and reflect on them. And some things may be convincing to you, others may not, and, and that's fine. But it seems to me that some of these implications of life, if, if God does not exist as well as he said, there's... No immortality, and then we're going to bring back that word objective. That is, it is the case, regardless and independent of our personal beliefs. There's no objective purpose uh, or value or, or meaning. That There's no free will, and there's no objective morality. So let's talk about these and break them down a little bit more. First of all, there's uh, no immortality. Well, the operating opposite paradigm that I'm going to be using here as a more Darwinian evolutionary naturalistic sort of paradigm. Uh, that's certainly not the only view of reality. You know, there, there's certainly others out there, but I'm using this one because, well, it's rather popular, and I'm just using it as something to go against and kind of show you some things, okay? So, well, if God doesn't exist, and what it seems like the best explanation for existence, if God doesn't exist is some sort of Darwinian evolutionary scheme then man is an accidental byproduct of the evolutionary process. Okay? Uh, the implication of that is, well, man is a temporal, physical being, a relatively complex collection of physical parts. Everything that exists is about physics and chemistry. Okay? That's just the way things are, and what we are is just collections of these ordered aggregates, these physical parts, and now, mind you, very complex. Very complex. 
but that's all you are. And in Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to be referring to, to some things from Ecclesiastes, um, because I think what, what's going on in there is some of these things that we're talking about, the implications of, of life if God does not exist. And so perhaps after this morning, I may encourage you to just to go back and to read through Ecclesiastes with this view. And that's a little small. You may or may not be able to see it back there, and I'll go ahead and read it for you guys. It says, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man, as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. That's it. You're here, you're gone, that's it. Okay? Uh, There's no objective purpose. Uh, There's no higher idea objectively out there to ascribe to. And so what that leaves us with is our personal subjective preferences. So it's, it's, it's certainly reasonable for you to give yourself some sort of purpose. Uh, well, I'm going to purpose myself towards working for a nonprofit organization and, and doing this sort of thing, or I'm going to purpose myself to, to get married and to have kids and, or, you know, so on and so on. Okay, you can, you are free if, it's certainly, if, if there's no objective purpose, you're certainly free to give yourself subjective purposes, either your own personal ones or perhaps group ones. Perhaps part of your culture or your group has some higher set of things that, that are subjective that they say it's good to purpose yourself towards this, so let's do it, okay? And you can certainly do that. I think that's certainly obvious. But whatever purpose you come up with, uh, if God doesn't exist, there, it's not objective, okay? You're just doing, right? And so that's the case, that last point there, there's no ultimate achievements, there's just doing. We're just Go, do, die. That's it. Uh, and likewise, there's, it seems like there's no objective value. That is, a man that has no really objective worth. Now, we can subjectively, our personal preferences, we can place worth in things. You can still do that, okay? But there's no objective worth. That is, in the grand scheme of things, man is just the current end of the evolutionary process and is no more important than anything earlier or even later on the evolutionary chain. There's no real value there, objectively. And so whatever happens is really a matter of random natural selection. Ecclesiastes, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beasts, for all is vanity. I'll go to the same place, I'll come from the dust, and I'll return to the dust. No objective meaning. There's nothing substantial to anything that we think or, or do. And again, we can give ourselves to them or our culture or groups can provide this or give it uh, subjectively, but it seems like there is at least no greater objective thing beyond us uh, that exists there when it comes to meaning. Ecclesiastes, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this one's rather interesting to me, that there's no free will. And this, you may disagree with me on this, and, and again, that's fine. But it, but it seems, at least to me, that if everything that exists is really just physical, and everything can be explained in terms of physics and chemistry, uh, that everything is determined from perhaps the Big Bang. That physics and chemistry are going towards this end thing, whatever that end result's going to be, and there's nothing you can do about it. That right now, the what you're thinking about has actually already been determined by physics and chemistry. Perhaps you think that you're choosing to think what you're thinking about now. Or perhaps you think that you're going to choose what you're going to have for lunch today, uh, but it's really just an illusion. It's been determined by physics and chemistry. And, and if perhaps if we, had the, if we had all the formulas, if we knew everything and how to explain everything, we could actually predict the future if everything is determined by physics and chemistry. And the implication of these sorts of things is there's no genuine self-consciousness or self-awareness. 
and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one today, uh, that there's no objective morality. And so basically the implications are that there's no good and evil, right and wrong, virtue, vice, no obligation to act in any manner. Now, if we want to this morning, we could get out a a sheet of paper and, and I can begin to list sorts of things. On one side, I can say, this is good and this is evil, and we can make a chart. We could get together and I could say, um, it's good to go eat at TGI Fridays on Friday because, well, it's Friday. Okay, we'll write that down. Now we go over to the other side and say, it's evil to go eat at TGI Fridays on any other day except Friday. Now, the people at TGI Fridays wouldn't be happy about that. That's not good for business. But if we wanted to, Today, we could make a list of things that are good and evil, right and wrong, and live according to them. So us being able to live in what we believe to be good, evil, right and wrong isn't, isn't really the point here. The main point is, why in the world would we have any obligation to act according to this list that we create? And I think that's really where the point lies here. Where does obligation come from? Another thing is that fall along the, on the wayside here is love, justice, faithfulness. They're just descriptions of behaviors. There, there's no worth there. There's no, nothing objective to those things. And some of the examples that, that, that we can think about here is when it comes to application is what about in Aurora, Colorado, when somebody comes into a movie theater and just begins to shoot people? What are, what are, what, and, this, and this part of this argument, I think, is, is going to be largely intuitive, what do we think and how do we respond when events like this happen? Do we think that they're evil? Um, do we think justice needs to be done here? Um, that's something we need to reflect on. Now, another example, of course, is perhaps a bit more drastic, is, is somebody goes into an elementary school, Sandy Hook Elementary, and begins shooting. What are our intuitions about that? Roman Ecclesiastes 4 here. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still living. Wow. Better off than both of them is the one who has never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So I want to spend a, a brief moment with you here, and, and, and we're going to be, this will be kind of it for, for the day, and then uh, we'll, we'll close. Uh, just to kind of give you a bit of a feel for the sorts of things that, that are going on here in the discussion. Now, I, I rarely admit that we don't have a lot of time here. The sorts of things that I'm doing uh, is just a small snippet of, of what's going on in the discussion. Okay, it's just a small piece, but I want to give you a little bit of taste of the sorts of things that are going on here. So let's discuss this just briefly. Uh, the moral argument, again, is premise one. If objective morality exists, then God exists. Uh, premise two is objective morality, well, it exists. And so necessarily, there are three, that God does exist. Uh, and what we're going to do to do briefly here is just look at premise two in the case that objective morality exists. And, and again... Uh, what I'm doing here with this term objective is I'm saying that there are moral values, good and evil, moral duties, right and wrong, that exist independently of our, us and our beliefs about them. Uh, and perhaps another example, that, and I hear this one rather commonly used, is, well, consider this. It is morally wrong to torture a baby for fun. What are your intuitions about that? Must we believe that it is morally wrong for it to indeed be wrong? Are our beliefs about that act what determine whether they're right or wrong, or is it right and wrong independent of our beliefs about them? And again, the challenge here is making sense of obligation. And if you watch, if you watch the news just <laughs> a little bit today, and you, get in, you see debates and hear people talk back and forth, it's, we should do this, or you shouldn't do this, and you ought to do this, or we ought not to do this, and the words should and ought are thrown around all the time. But these are words of obligation, if morality is subjective, that means it's, it's about personal preferences. Do I have any obligation to act in any manner, really? It doesn't seem so. Now, popular ways of denying uh, this premise, is these aren't the only two that are out there, but just the two that we're going to look at today is, well, first of all, objective morality is an illusion. That is, well, it appears to be uh, objective, but it really isn't. 
Okay? And then we'll just look at the case for moral relativism. And I'll briefly discuss what that means by that, and then we'll go through a few flaws, and then we'll be done. Okay? Uh, here's Michael Roos, a philosopher. He says, The Darwinian argues that morality simply does not work from a biological perspective unless we believe that it is objective. Uh, Darwinian theory shows that, in fact, morality is a function of subjective feelings. Uh, but it shows also that we have and must have the illusion of objectivity. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of detail here, but I just want to point out a few things that I think are important. And first of all, is a, is there's a huge admission that's embedded here, and that is morality seems to be objective. That it certainly appears in our interaction with, with reality that morality does seem to be objective. That means a certain way independent of our beliefs about them. Um, but if, even if they appear to be objective, but they're really subjective, well, that, that certainly seems to me like that sort of thing would ex- certainly explain how we feel. I think it certainly would explain how we feel certain ways. I, 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 could, I see that, certainly. But if that's the case, we are still left to be able, unable uh, to proclaim something actually is wrong or right. And, and that's part of the problem. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and skip to uh, moral relativism here. And what we mean by moral, moral relativism, and I think you're going to be very familiar with these things, even if you haven't seen them in a more philosophical uh, context or not, is really we're talking about what I mean here is moral values and duties are relative. Is they're dependent upon uh, the subject, whether that's you individually or us collectively. Um, so really what happens is our moral issues, uh, an application of this that you may hear a lot, and I hear it a lot in the cultures, well, what's true for you is not true for me is I think it's okay to do this, and that's true for me. Uh, You think it's okay to do that. Uh, That's true for you. All right, let's just have our personal preferences and be on our way. That's actually an argument that morality is subjective. Now, there are two main types of uh, moral relativism. That's cultural or group relativism, and then just individual, personal uh, relativism. And I just want to point out uh, a few things, just a few flaws for these things. Uh, but first of all, what I mean by cultural relativism is that one culture determines what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. That is, because society says so. And you may, this may seem familiar to you, like, well, this, this culture over here believes it's okay to do this, and that's fine for them. And uh, we as a culture believe it's okay to do this, and that's fine for us. Uh, that's kind of what it looks like here. But then individual relativism is that, well, it's because I said so. It's, I determine what's good and evil, what's right and wrong based on personal preferences. Uh, And just a few problems here. Well, with cultural relativism, it seems to me that the first question is, well, what is my culture? Let's see. I was born in Bryan, Texas. Uh, Is my culture those in Bryan, Texas? I'm a native Texan. I live in Texas. Uh, Is my culture Texas? Uh, I've lived in California for a little while. Uh, Is... Was my culture there, there when I moved? Uh, uh, I'm an Aggie. Is my culture the Aggie Network? Uh, you know, is it the United States? Is it uh, something else? I, I don't know. What is my culture? That seems to me, to me to be the first question of, well, that seems to be a big problem. And that hard to determine really what is my culture. And then we've got to think about, well, how does culture determine morality? And it's who's making the decisions, and why are they the ones to be making the decisions? Why does this person make the decisions uh, versus this other group of people? Why aren't they the ones making the decisions? Uh, there's no really obje- objective, deep, rich reason why anybody should be or ought to be making one thing or another when it comes to moral judgments under cultural relativism. And another implication of this is there are no immoral societies. Think about this. If a culture determines what is morally good and evil, then there is nothing wrong with tribal groups committed to human sacrifice. They determine what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. There's nothing wrong about that. There's nothing wrong. And there's nothing wrong about slavery in the United States back in the early 1800s. Do we really want to go there? Nazi Germany's treatment of Jews. I'm, I'm convinced that Hitler thought he was doing something good that he was actually promoting the, the evolutionary process, furthering it along. I could be wrong about that. But if they really believe that that's something good for them, then if cultural relativism is true, then who are we to say that that's wrong? That's a big problem. And then, of course, Iran's desire to destroy Israel. If cultural relativism is true, there's nothing wrong with that. 
And there's also nothing wrong with Israel not wanting to be destroyed. Um, but we're going to move on here to personal relativism, and, and we're, we're getting towards the end here, so, so hang with me, okay? Well, first of all, it seems to me that relativists cannot accuse others of wrongdoing because, well, there is no wrongdoing. If it's all about us to personal preferences, that is, you may hear this a lot, you shouldn't force your morality on me. You shouldn't force your morality on me. And then the response, well, well why not? Why are you forcing your moral view on me? These are the, some of the things that kind of go on in this discussion. Now, it seems to me also that relativists cannot complain about the problem of evil. Because, well, there's no objective good and evil. It's about personal preferences. You may not like something, but you're just complaining about personal preferences. And this is actually interesting. That there actually is an argument for the existence of God based upon the existence of evil. That is, it seems like God must exist for objective morality to exist, which then allows them the complaint to hold. And for us to say that there actually is objective good and evil is actually a case, an argument for the existence of God. And there's other things we need to work out in that discussion, but that's just something to think about. Here are a few other ones. Relativists cannot place blame or accept praise for moral behavior because there is no objective moral behavior. It's just preferences. Uh, relativists cannot make charges of unfairness or injustice because there really is no objective unfairness or injustice. It just is the way it is. Uh, and they cannot promote the obligation of tolerance. You can want tolerance. You can prefer tolerance. But it's not an obligation. Uh, perhaps we as a society can make certain laws where if you're not tolerant, you're going to have certain implications. But, you know, that's what we do as a society. But we can't really say that it was good or evil or right or wrong. One thing, it does not seem to be able to be lived out consistently. Uh, a relativist cannot fight for moral causes in an objective way and be consistent. Uh, when we were in California, we saw protests. They'd be somewhat common. Uh, the ones that we saw really weren't violent or anything, but there were different issues that were going on. And um, people were, would claim, well, it's immoral for you to do this, and we're going to protest about it. Well, if you're a relativist about morality, well, you're just, you're just really protesting things of your personal preferences, and you really have no perhaps a moral objective cause going on here. And perhaps a more experiential thing here is if a relativist is robbed, it seems to me that he cannot say that it was wrong. It was just a matter of running into someone with a different view. You may not like it. I, I know I wouldn't like it. But if there actually is no objective good and evil, right and wrong, then that was that person's personal preferences of what they want to do, and so be it. And if taken seriously, the consequences are tragic. And this is um, my, my wrapping up point here regarding this issue. Perhaps this guy looks familiar. This strikes me. This was from, from uh, the first Harry Potter. It's right towards the end, if you're familiar with, with these. Is he makes a claim. He says, there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. That's a really good example of the implications of, of someone's life, of what they can do if... Morality really is just about personal preferences. About this guy, Mussolini. Everything I have said and done in these last years is relativism by intuition. If relativism signifies contempt for fixed categories and men who claim to be bearers of an objective immortal truth, we go, then there is nothing more relativistic than fascistic attitudes and activity. From the fact that all ideologies are of equal value, that all ideologies are mere fictions, the modern relativist infers that everybody has the right to create for himself his own ideology and to attempt to enforce it with all the energy of which he is capable. Oops, this guy. I freed Germany, this Hitler, I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience and morality. We will train young people before whom the world will tremble. So that's a bit of a view of what's going on here when we get into the more details of arguments for God's existence, okay? So, again, these implications are, at least it seems to me, well, there's no immortality, there's no objective purpose, uh, value, meaning to life, uh, there's no objective morality, and there's no free will. And I'm going to ask you the question, what does this seem like to you? Well, it seems to me like life is absurd, and there's nothing that you and I can do about it. That's just the way it is. And so when we are asking the question about the existence of God, we need to ask, well, what are the implications? Well, if God does exist, and it seems to me, uh, at, at least when we're talking about Christian theism, uh, that there is immortality. 
that we are created beings with a, a physical and non-physical uh, constitution, that there is objective purpose, value, and meaning to life, uh, that he himself provides, that God himself provides, and there is morality because he is a standard bearer that can uphold this thing and create it and establish it, and that we actually do have free will, and that it's not an illusion, that you are choosing to go a certain place uh, for lunch and eat what you're going to eat and so on. And I just want to point to you through scriptures where we see this. Paul in Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Purpose, value, meaning. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. That's some significant value. And so today, if, if you're dealing or struggling with issues of personal value and identity and worth, God himself made you in his image. The perfect being made you and me in his image. That is incredibly significant. And that, it seems to me, is objective value independent of your personal beliefs about it. So even when you are struggling with identity, with value, you are regardless of whether you think so or not. Now, I hope that you do see yourself as valuable and worth it and worthy because it's true, because it's true. And I love this from Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see the purpose, value, meaning of what's going on here. And, to some, and we're getting close to the end here. Uh, and I like, we've, we've talked about Ecclesiastes a little bit. We've gone there to try to draw out some things that he was saying about the implications of life without God. And he says, the conclusion, when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, whether, or everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And this is the way reality really is, folks. And there's some implications of this that are pretty significant. That is, God is going to hold account those things that we do. And so we need to ask the question, not only does, well, not only does he exist, but, well, what is, the, what is our status? Well, what is our situation in relation to him? And certainly, uh, it seems to me like Christian theism is certainly true. And the implications of the message of Christian theism is this, that we are really messed up. And that our relationship with God has been ruptured and broken because of our transgressions and our, cho- our choosing to do these sorts of things. And the situation is, well, we are immortal. We're going to live without end into the future. And the implications are, well, where's that going to be? But I want you to know that God deeply, deeply loves you and cares for you. And perhaps you are a Christian here in this room. Perhaps you're not. But there's something we need to dwell on, and I want to dwell on this for just a moment. We're almost done here. Paul and Colossians, And even though you were dead in your transgressions, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. It's talking about sin here. And the wages of it is death. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Not only does God exist and he made us to be with him and to enjoy him forever, but he preferred a world in which we freely chose him or not. He wanted that value that he didn't want us to be drones. He wanted us to choose. We're also here have chosen wrongly. And the implications is that we are ruptured and we are separated. But God loves us far too much to leave that the way it is. And he himself came down here took it upon himself to give himself freely for you and me. And all you have to do is trust him. That's it. Now, that couldn't be hard because it it's, can be humbling and humiliating to admit our mistakes. But I'll be, first, I'll be first in line here to say that I've made a ton of mistakes and I'm in desperate need of his forgiveness. And, and I want to encourage you this morning, if, if you know him already, uh, to spend some time in confession and, and thanking him for what he's done, and he's not left us to ourselves, uh, but to go before him and, and, and spend some time with him. And if you do not know him, I'm encouraging you the implications of his existence and the way the reality really is out there, independent of our beliefs about it, is that when you pass, we're going to be somewhere. And I want to encourage you that's much more important 
than what you're eating for lunch, what your degree is, what you do for a job, family, and so on. And so I want you to seriously consider uh, this morning, if you hadn't made that choice to, to place your faith in Christ freely for the forgiveness of your sins, to seriously consider that this morning. Because the implications are far, far too heavy and weighty uh, for to push this question aside. I love this quote, and this is it. We're done. It's a great way to sum it up. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. I love what he says here. I said, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That is, why I believe in Christianity because in and of itself I see it as a great case for that reality it really is this way. But as soon as I enter into this as an explanation of reality, all this other stuff seems to really fit and make sense. The collective case for the existence of God and also including the case for uh, Christianity is far too heavy and weighty when it comes to explanatory power and scope. You have good reason to believe that it's true. You have really good reason to believe that it's true. And let that be encouraging to your faith uh, this morning. So I'll close this with a prayer. Father, thank you for this morning and, and the time that we had to, uh, to spend some time in a little bit more philosophical arena and the implications of these things. But, but we thank you for the opportunity to do that on a Sunday morning. Father, I just, I just thank you for the time I had with, with my friends here and the, and the work that you were doing in their lives. And I ask that you would bless them, that you would draw them closer to you and those things which uh, we, and so I'm certainly including myself in this search for satisfaction, purpose, meaning, fulfillment, other than you leaves us so empty and so dry. Not because there is something other than you, but because we have been created by you to enjoy you and to be with you. So I ask that you would draw us to you and that we'd be intentional to confess and spend time with you and to indeed enjoy you as we have been made to do. It's in Christ's name. Amen.